Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car... Use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. On November 8th, actually it was November 9th, 2016, Donald Trump became the president-elect of the United States of America. And on January 20th, 2017, he walked into the White House as president. So that happened. The night he was elected, I was in the bustle offices covering the election. Throughout the day, the excitement was pretty palpable. I mean, we were looking at the prospect of our first female president. We got a singing telegram dressed like a gorilla, a shipment of dozens of red, white, and blue balloons. It was kind of ridiculous. So then when the results came in, it was like this weird and devastating thing to process. Everyone reacted in their own way, and you probably did too. And soon enough, new worries started to settle in. We worried about our access to birth control to abortions, to reproductive health. We worried that we wouldn't be able to take our bodies back and forth across borders. We worried that some bodies would face more discrimination than others. We worried that we wouldn't be able to express our gender and sexual identities the way that we used to. It was a lot. There's a lot of information swirling around that feels all at once incredibly important and also incredibly overwhelming. Sometimes we get lucky and we can align ourselves with the situation because of our own experiences. But when that doesn't happen, rather than trying to find a thread through all the impersonal facts, we need to hear a story unlike ours. Our approach to season two of this podcast over the next few months is to provide you with information, but also stories you may not have heard before. They're the unconventional narratives that people are living in all their different bodies. And above all the din from Washington and Trump Tower, you'll be able to hear them loud and clear. I'm Amanda Richards. Welcome to the podcast. For the first episode, let's hit the ground running and talk about abortion, one of the most controversial issues in the public discourse. January 2017 marked 44 years since the U.S. Supreme Court passed Roe v. Wade, which removed the threat of criminal prosecution of women who have abortions. Many believe that Donald Trump's presence in the White House poses a threat to this. Since the inauguration, Republicans in Congress have tried to cut funding to Planned Parenthood. Another issue is Trump's nomination of Judge Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court, a man with a strong anti-choice record on abortion. Finally, Days after Trump was inaugurated, the House passed a bill to make the Hyde Amendment permanent. That would put a ban on using federal funds to pay for abortion. Granted, the GOP has pushed that same bill in the past, but as you can see, there's a lot at stake. And what's missing from all of that confusing language and policy are women's voices. To help us navigate all of this, we're going to be hearing from different women. Someone who performs abortions, someone who helps people get them, and someone who's actually had one. 
First up, we'll be talking to Dr. Colleen McNicholas. Colleen is one of the few doctors who performs abortions across the Midwest. She actually travels to her patients, but her home base is in Missouri. Hi, Colleen. Hi, thanks for having me. How many doctors perform abortions in Missouri? Well, there's only one freestanding clinic uh, in the state of Missouri that provides abortions, and that's here in St. Louis. And so what that means is that women from across the state have to travel here to St. Louis to be able to access that care. Right. So that means if you live in Kansas City, and I'm not talking about Kansas City, Kansas, I'm talking about Kansas City, Missouri, you'd have to drive three and a half hours just to get an abortion. That's correct. Okay. So obviously you must feel it's incredibly important to, you know, make access more available. So important, in fact, that you go from town to town. This is sort of like I imagine like an old timey traveling Western doctor (laughs) in my head. That's what it's like. Is that what it's like? (laughs) Well, hopefully people don't think I'm old timey, but um, well. <laughs> in practice, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so uh, you know, one of the the real um, issues with particularly restrictive states like Missouri and Kansas and Oklahoma is that there is such tremendous restriction on and impact on access um, in all three of these states. The clinics are going to be located sort of in urban areas. So so that in and of itself provides a barrier. But maybe more importantly is sort of the addition of legislative restrictions. The use of tactics by the legislators, such as implementing waiting periods um, and insurance bans, those are all things that have real impact on women's ability to access the service. And it's in states like these that really we see the biggest impact. What you might be able to do in one state (laughs) differs from what you do in another state. Is that accurate to say? That's absolutely true. So the the rules sort of change state by state. And really in in no way am I suggesting that, you know, the women who live in California or New York can very easily access abortion because that's also not true. There's work to be done even in the most liberal of states. But I think sort of in, in these sort of conservative Midwest and Southern states, we really have seen sort of the biggest onslaught of legislative restrictions added on top of the just this sort of geographic um, difficulty that women have. What do you mean by geographic dif- difficulty? So, you know, in states where there's lots of restrictions um, on abortion, there's very few private practice OBGYNs performing abortions that really the bulk of abortion care is happening in freestanding abortion clinics. And so, you know, women aren't able, as they should be able to, um, just go to their doctor where they live and say, you know, I have an unplanned pregnancy or I have an undesired pregnancy or, you know, you're telling me I'm too sick to have this pregnancy. So let's do something about that. They're not able to access that care in the place that they live. Um, They have to travel in order to do that. So you go to them and I want to know a little bit more about how you sort of arrived at that decision, living in a part of the country where so few people in these communities want to set up shop and do it full time or can't. Um, So how did you get there? Yeah, well, as you said, the women who feel the impact of limited access are the ones who have the least number of resources. It has always been true throughout history that women and families of means will access safe abortion care. That isn't that isn't now and hasn't been a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is is in the women who need it the most. Um, despite the number of restrictions that we put on abortion, no matter how much we try and limit access, 
What will not change is the fact that women will have abortions. What will change is the safety of abortion. As a physician, as a scientist, you know, I am trained to sort of evaluate literature to, and to promote public health. And this is such a clear violation of those principles. So I want to talk more about what you do in light of all that. What's it like traveling to perform abortions? So I go for a few days, um, a, couple of, a couple of times a month to different clinics um, to provide those services. And from my perspective, um, really the hard, hardest part of, of traveling to provide services is knowing that, you know, there, there are all of these women who are depending on you being there to get the care that they need and that they deserve. And mm-hmm. so what that translates into is a lot of stress about late flights or broken down cars or weather issues or personal issues or family illness, right? Any one of those things can really impact, you know, a whole host of of women who were expecting, hoping, and deserving to get care. I wanted to also go back to the first thing you said uh, when you made your last point about unintended pregnancy. Um, we are not effective at giving women options before they come become pregnant. So why do you think that is? Well, I think it's it's multifactorial. I think, again, for the same reasons that abortion has become a political issue much more than it has a healthcare issue, so too has everything that has to do with sexuality in this country. So, you know, we have abstinence-only sexual education throughout our school systems, which time and time again have been shown to be not effective. I mean, I truly believe that if we're going to ask people to make healthy choices about their sex lives and their pregnancy decisions and carrying a pregnancy or not, we really have to give them the tools to do that. And we don't, starting from very early on. We don't teach them about their body. We don't teach them how it works. um, And we don't teach them how to prevent pregnancy realistically. So I think it starts with that. You know, then we still have this, you know, continuous fight about whether birth control should be part of normal health care, which I will tell you, most women spend the vast majority of their lives trying to avoid pregnancy, not trying to get pregnant, right? <laughs> yeah. um, and so to me, it seems very intuitive that that would be part of the normal health care and insurance system. Talking about all this stuff, just for me personally, can feel really hopeless. It can make me really angry. But, you know, what are you most hopeful about? Since November, I have been contacted by several patients who are now sort of feeling ready and committed and actually like they have a responsibility. Um, and I think that's important. You know, when I think about and certainly no two movements are are exactly the same. But when I think about how quickly this country has moved on issues, for example, of gay and lesbian rights and, and what you know, what were some of the factors that made that happen? I think about sort of all of the people who know somebody who's gay. Well, similarly, most people know somebody who's had an abortion. They just don't know that they right. know somebody who's had an abortion, including all of these legislators, right? And so, you know, I think it's it's going to take lots of different sort of approaches. But one of the things that I'm really um, hopeful about is the fact that women who have had abortions are now feeling like like they they can talk about that publicly. That's what makes me feel good in the face of all the bullshit, you know? Yes, there's sometimes we have to hang on to just a few things, right? (laughs) 
As our conversation with Colleen just showed, the resources available to women who want to get abortions go well beyond Planned Parenthood. And there are groups that can help particularly at-risk women to get the services they need. There's a national network of abortion funds that operates chapters all over the United States. The CARE Project is one such chapter. It's a nonprofit in the Pacific Northwest that provides non-biased information and referrals. They also give financial help in the form of grants for abortion services. So now I'm with Anita Yandel, a member of the communications team and a fundraising chair at the CARE Project. Can you start off by explaining what the National Network of Abortion Funds actually is? So an abortion fund is exactly what it sounds like. We fund abortions with a hotline of trained volunteers. And many abortion funds, including the CARE Project, also help with other aspects of accessing one's abortion, including practical support, that is, getting to your abortion, finding somewhere to stay overnight if that's part of the procedure, and making sure that you have the ability and funds to do that. Could you tell us a little bit more about what it is that you guys do, who you serve? So the CARE Project is a regional fund. As you mentioned, we do Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and Alaska. And that means that we have a very diverse group of folks that we're working with. Mm. People are coming to us from rural areas, from urban areas. And sometimes people are coming over from Canada as well. It seems like there's not really one type of person that has an abortion, which I think sort of defies the narrative that's fed to us from, you know, the media about like, oh, this is the kind of person that has an abortion. Um, In your experience, that's not true. No, it's not. The most likely, the the most common people who have an abortion already are parents um, and they just don't have the ability to have another child, which really is counter to the narrative that we're told that it's all irresponsible young teenagers who, even if you are a teenager, you have the right to choose for yourself your own body, but it's very different narrative than what we're fed. Yeah, I actually read something from the Guttmacher Institute. Um, According to one of their surveys, more than half of women who had abortions in 2014 had at least one child, and also teenagers only accounted for 12% of abortions nationwide. So I live in New York City, so getting an abortion here is relatively easy compared to other parts of the United States. And the CARE Project and other NAF chapters are really valuable, I think, to people who don't live in places like this, and especially people who live in areas where abortion is stigmatized. Yes, we have folks who are seeking abortions who have been living their life believing that abortion is a bad thing. And it's an interesting situation to be in to hear people say on the phone, I don't believe in this. I think this is a bad thing, but I need this. Mm -hmm. You can feel the changing in people's lives when they realize that the story they've been told their whole lives, that this is something that happens only to other people, is not true. This is something that can happen to anyone, to the point that a third of women in the U.S. do have an abortion. And how do you reach women? I mean, when we live, especially much of the country sort of operates in this culture of morality and really there's all this misconception about abortion and and, and what it means to get it. Like, how do, how do you reach these women? So people tend to come to us after they've already contacted an abortion clinic. You know, they've talked to their Planned Parenthood or their local mm-hmm. private clinic, and then they find out what it costs. Um, and that's when they call us. Most of the All the clinics have our contact information, refer them to us. And of course, you mentioned this before, but just to go back to it, it's not just about the money. It's about the volunteers, the rides, right? Like, can you can you explain a little bit more about that beyond the financial help? Sure. So 
The further away you are from a clinic, the longer you have to drive to go there. The more time you have to spend planning for childcare, taking a day off of work if that's something you can afford, and even planning a hotel stay. And if you have a procedure that's a two-day procedure or a three-day procedure, whether that's because you're later on your term or if you're in Idaho where you have to come a day earlier and do an ultrasound and then wait 24 hours, then you also are planning for that. In Idaho, there are only two clinics for the entire state. Total. Total. For the entire place. The whole place. (laughs) Hey, listener, it's Amanda. Just so you know, we double-checked. It's actually three clinics in Idaho, not two. Still, that's not many. Which means that people are really stretching their resources to go there because you're driving hours to go. You have to get your ultrasound. You have to find somewhere to stay overnight. You have to get back up the next day, then have your procedure. If you're not feeling well, you may have to stay another night in a different town and then you can go home. And if you're planning childcare and time off of work, that's really rough. I'm just curious, you know, from your perspective, like what could the administration's actions potentially mean for the national network of abortion funds and the care project? I think a lot of what the administration will do, being so anti-women, so anti-abortion, is enable states to create tougher and tougher laws. Even in blue states like Washington, every year there is a bill introduced in the legislature to require parental notification, to defund from state Medicaid. And the more enabled our states are by the administration, the more likely they are to pass those kinds of restrictions. Idaho, as we mentioned earlier, is our toughest state as far as the laws. And they're the second smallest state in our region population-wise, but they receive 50% of our funding because the more restrictions you put in place, the harder it is. Right. And just like you said, Idaho is one of the toughest states. Women who want an abortion have to get counseling and they have to wait for 24 hours before the procedure. I think parental consent for minors is an absolute must. And also, like, in in terms of insurance, abortion is only covered under the Affordable Care Act in the cases of rape or incest or if the woman's life is endangered. You know, this is just one state, Idaho, but what about, like, on a federal level? There are several threats at the federal level, including a bill that was introduced on February 2nd, an executive order um, that President Trump is suggesting that discrimination based on premarital sex and abortion would be legal. That is shocking and not acceptable. And there are also proposals to make the Hyde Amendment permanent. The Hyde Amendment is a provision that the federal law cannot fund abortion. That means that people who are on federal Medicaid, federal employees, military families, tribal members cannot get funding for abortion. Well, in the meantime, I think it's super important for people who are listening to know you can support CARE and you can support the National Network for Abortion Funds. Can you tell us a little bit about how? So there are a few great ways to get involved. You can contact your local abortion fund if you want to talk to them about volunteering or donating. And if you don't know who your local fund is, a great resource is to become an independent member of the National Network of Abortion Funds. On the Abortion Funds website, they have a membership sign up and they will connect you with your local fund who you can then talk to about ways to get involved. Another great way to support abortion funds and just abortion storytellers in general is We Testify. It's a program by the National Network of Abortion Funds 
that promotes the stories of people who have had abortions. If you've had one and you want to tell your story, you can give it to them. And if you don't want to tell your own story, but you want to help normalize the procedure, then you can read their stories and start talking to the people in your life. So at this point, we've spoken to a physician that performs abortions, and she told us why access is so important. We've also heard from someone who directly facilitates abortions for women with limited access and resources. So now it makes total sense to me that we speak with someone who's actually had one and, in fact, used the National Network of Abortion Funds to get it. So with that, I'd like to welcome Brittany Mosteller to the show. Hi, Brittany. Hi. Thanks for having me. To get started, I wanted, you know, to sort of begin with you telling listeners a little bit about your life and your life situation when you found yourself faced with an unwanted pregnancy. Sure. Um, this was almost 10 years ago, um, August of 2007, sorry. And I was about 22, had three young children, all under the age of, wow, of seven. Um, and I found myself pregnant again and just did not want to carry that pregnancy to term due to a lot of things. Um, I had a part-time job. I was sharing a two-bedroom apartment with my sister and my niece. And I just couldn't, uh, you know, it was rough trying to make ends meet. And I was just also going through a lot mentally. And I just knew that abortion was the best decision for me and my family at that time. So you mentioned that you had children already when you found yourself faced with an unwanted pregnancy. And I'm curious, I mean, there's a particular kind of stigma that comes, you know, that against parents who already have children who want to get abortions. Is that is that accurate? Absolutely. Um, majority of the people in America who have abortions are already parents. So there's, again, this this uh, misconception that women who have or people who have abortions you know, hate children or just not loving people. Like It's just absurd. Um, we, The folks who are in this movement and doing this work, we know who our callers are and who we support, and they are parents. And most of the times we're doing, we're making these decisions for our families, for ourselves in order to su- continue to support our families in as best as we can. And if, a, um, if carrying a pregnancy to term and it's not, you know, just doesn't work for us, then we should be able to have access to safe abortion care. So when you were a parent who wanted to get an abortion, did you experience any of that firsthand from anybody? It's like, how, how can I explain it? It's like, although I've never um, told anyone and didn't receive it personally, it's like you always knew. I just knew that folks thought abortion was wrong or that uh, how could you do this as a parent already? Like, I knew that um, without necessarily having that as my personal experience before 2007. And not having language to to articulate like what I was feeling, what I was going through or just the shame I was feeling from society. Like that was, that was really difficult for me. So even though people weren't, you know, directly saying things to you, like, how could you do this? You're a parent. You still felt that just because of the way, you know, culturally we think about it, we approach it. And I imagine 
that that the same thing probably applies um, to the stigma and stereotype surrounding black women having abortions. Absolutely. It, you know, for, for centuries, folks have just tried to control black bodies, particularly black um, female bodies. And, you know, you just, it just gets to a point where if you're not like in this work, so I always think about like pre 2007, if you're not doing this or a part of this, you can't really, you can't name that, that shame and that, and that stigma and that struggle being a black woman and being, being a black mother. And like, like you said, culturally, like what it means, you can't, it's just, it's just a really difficult position to be in. Can you tell me about how you came across the Chicago Abortion Fund? I know it's a chapter of the National Network, but... I had an appointment scheduled at John Stroger Hospital here in Chicago, which is our Cook County Hospital. And they only provide procedures up until 12 weeks. And I was about 15 weeks. So what they do is provide you with a resource list. I was just calling all the um, clinics and funding resources that were on that list, and I came across Chicago Abortion Fund. I had never even heard of the organization, did not know any fund existed. Um, so, of course, I knew nothing about the National Network either. And just so happened, it was a Tuesday. I'll never forget it was a Tuesday, and that was the day that CAF was accepting um, calls on their hotline. And I immediately started calling at 3 o'clock. So I can get through because funds are given out on the first were given out on a first come first serve basis, and so you know just pleading and begging them to help me because I did not have the somewhere between seven and nine hundred dollars that my procedure cost at fifteen weeks. Do you remember, you know, how you felt once it was over? I mean, did you feel relieved? Were you conflicted in any way? After the actual procedure, I felt like I had gotten my life back. Um, it was, it was a rough, it was rough for me. I didn't know what I was going to do. I decided a few months before I found out I was pregnant that, you know, I wanted to go back to school. I just wanted to give more to my children and just do more with my life. Um, and didn't know like how I was going to do that or what path I was going to take. But, you know, having my abortion, getting funding from CAF, like it, I just felt like I could finally do all those things I decided I wanted to do. And I will, now I had the opportunity to do it and I just still needed to figure out that path and what it looks like, but at least I could still do it on my own terms. It's interesting because the narrative that people create for women who have abortions is a life sort of plagued with regret and guilt. Um, But this you know, this experience for you ultimately really guided the course of your life and your career, right? From the very beginning, um, I've said it, that calling Chicago Abortion Fund and having my abortion when I did and funded the way it was, like it absolutely changed my life. Um, Absolutely no regrets. I've never regretted uh, my abortion. It was one of the best things I could have ever done for me and my family. Um, I started volunteering with the organization shortly after. When I first came on board as staff here as deputy director almost four years ago, one of my duties was to operate the hotline. And so many people would call. And I mean, it's a lot. It's emotionally taxing. I will say that. But 
there's always this deeper connection because I was also on the other end of that call. So I, I know what it's like to call a fund and not really know what to expect. And I can hear the, the shame in their voices sometimes. And, just, and I just try to reassure them, like, you know, we're here to support you, whatever you decide. Um, we're here for you. We'll be here afterwards. I do know how it feels like folks have cried and we've prayed and talked. We've done, you know, it's been, it's been just a really beautiful experience. And I'm so grateful to be able to, to connect with people in that way. So yeah, I'm almost in tears when I think about that. I just, I just, you're going to make me cry. I'm sitting here like almost getting emotional. That's how I learned everything that I know now, just through this organization. And because of my abortion, um, I'm able to now be in a position as executive director of this amazing organization. And more importantly, I'm in a position to fund people's abortions and offer them support and do this work in my community, for my community, for myself, for my family, for my people, for all oppressed and marginalized people. So, yeah, that's all because I had an abortion and it was funded through Chicago Abortion Funds. <laughs> like this, I had no idea of this world. And, and to say, like, I'd be remiss if I just did not say that at every chance I get. Like, it's because of my abortion that I am the person I am today. Thank you for tuning in to the first episode of season two of the podcast. You know, having spoken to these three women, each of whom has a different story within the abortion narrative, I'm both grateful and a little bit sad. I'm grateful because we have such badass heroines doing this kind of work, making abortion access easier for everyone. But I'm sad because they still have to. Hopefully, once the political pendulum swings again, we'll be able to tell a different story. I want to thank Dr. Colleen McNicholas, Anita Yandel, and Brittany Mostiller for coming on the show. A special shout out to NARAL board member and We Testify storyteller Renee Bracy Sherman. She was a huge help, and you should really check out her story at wetestify.org slash stories. Thanks also to Meg Chappell, a volunteer with The Care Project. Our producers were Anna Parsons and Pierre Bienname. And thank you for listening. Join us again in two weeks when we'll hear from a Syrian refugee who will give us a unique perspective on immigration. I don't know, like, I don't feel that I am planning for my life here because, like, it's still uncertain. So maybe it's kind of protective way that I don't want to think about something that might not happen. That's next time. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.